You take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. As you're turning there, I'm coming to this passage, I'm reminded of a trip that we took back in 2012-2013. We went to see my sister uh, who at that time, her husband was uh, stationed over in the Netherlands, and uh, they were there, and so we had to fly over there. And what we did is we realized that either you had flights that flew into London or into Amsterdam, and we decided that we were going to fly into London because we wanted to see London rather than uh, Amsterdam. It was a place so we enjoy things English and the like, and so uh, we figured we'd spend a few days in London. So actually my sister was like well i haven't been to london either i've been over here in europe for three years and haven't been to london yet so she came on train and visited us uh, there in london initially and we walked for four days we walked and walked and walked and walked and walked and walked all over london uh, we took the tube periodically to get to one location or another but we were walking and walking and walking and walking and so we're seeing up things up close and personal all the things that you would normally see in London. And the question was asked, did you see the London countryside? You see anything outside of, you know, the metropolis of all the buildings and everything else? And the answer is sort of. Because when we went back uh, with my sister to uh, where they lived in the Netherlands, we took the train, uh, the Channel train, which goes underneath the English Channel. And for some, that's a, you know, a frightening experience to be underwater like that for a long distance of time. But it, it, it's really not all that bad because the train travels at 125 miles an hour. We did see the English countryside. We tried to take a picture or two as we went whizzing by it to get to the coast and then underneath the water. Uh, we really didn't see the English countryside after having spent days plodding along, looking at different things up close and personal. Uh, we flew through that area, and so I can technically say, yes, I saw the English countryside, but yeah, at 125 miles an hour. We're kind of like that when it comes to the study of Genesis. We have plodded through passage after passage, usually covering a chapter or part of a chapter and, and doing that every Sunday morning as we're looking at uh, God just getting everything set up for the rest of our Bible. The things that are set up in Genesis are really what the rest of the Bible plays off of uh, as far as the story that uh, God has uh, through the Scripture. And we've kind of done that. And then today, we're going Genesis 42, 43, and 44, and we're going to be done with it. And you're kind of going, you know, whoa, and you look at it and you're going, one's got 38 verses and the other one's got 34 and the one we read already has 34. How is it going to cover all of that? Fairly easily. Because what I'm going to do is basically give you a synopsis because uh, some of the details that we have of the back and forth is not really the, the message, the, the emphasis of these three chapters. It's the three chapters together that is displaying something that we need to understand. See, what we're going to see in these three chapters is that it's Joseph meeting with his brothers on multiple occasions, though they have no idea who he is. I mean, for some of you, you may go, well, how in the world did they not recognize their brother? Well, it had been 20 years. And their brother had no hair on the top of his head, no hair on his face, 
had a weird beard, probably makeup on, and a weird headdress, and he spoke in a different language. So, you know, as the story takes place, his brothers don't even have a thought that this could be Joseph or anything like that. So the story takes place where they finally meet Joseph. They don't know it. And it's the back and forth of Joseph communicating with them and communicating with them again and then sending them back home and them coming back again. And you go, well, what's the whole purpose? Why does the Lord give us all these details and the like? Well, it's for what we see in verse number 15 of chapter 42. Verse 14, Joseph said unto his brothers, he wants them to go back and get his youngest brother. And he says this, that is it that I spake unto you, saying, ye are spies, ye shall be and the word there is proved. We would probably best, better understand this. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall go not forth except your youngest brother come hither. What we have in this, these three, three chapters is that Joseph is testing his brothers. It's really God, through Joseph, testing the brothers to see what kind of character they have. That over 20 years, what has gone on in their life? Joseph is suddenly faced with them, and he's trying to figure out, are these brothers different than what they were when they took me and put me in a pit and sold me off, uh, suggesting they wanted to murder me and the like? What, what's gone on in their life? And for us, as uh, we've read the, the story uh, so far, we haven't had much details about the brothers. We've had the story of Judah or a little bit as far as what happens in chapter 38 where he ends up fathering his sons uh, through his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But beyond that, we really don't have any details of what's going on in their life. And so what we're going to find out is what has gone on in 20 years, what has happened in their life, have they changed, and if they have, why have they changed? What changed them? And for us, to, to, as we go through these passages, understand this, that the theme just simply for us is this, that God uses tests to reveal character and to bring about change. Okay, God uses tests to reveal character and to bring change. I mean, this book so far, as we've gone through, we know there's chapter arrangements. There's 10 chapters, and they all start with the fact of this statement. These are the generations of somebody. And in Genesis 37 and verse 2, it says, these are the generations of Jacob or of Israel. And what it's telling us is that we're not going to have a whole bunch of stories about Jacob. We're going to have a whole bunch of stories about his sons. But as you go through uh, reading in Genesis 37, we said the focus is mainly on Joseph. We've spent a lot of time on Joseph. Joseph, as we've seen, is a character, whether he's in a pit, whether he's a slave to Potiphar, whether he is in prison, he is a person who faithfully follows God. There's no change in his life. It doesn't matter what his circumstances are, whether he is in the worst of circumstances, or as we saw last week, he's got success. He's standing before Pharaoh. He's still pointing to God. 
He's going, God's the one who's all important. God's the one who's faithful. God can do these things. He's pointing at God. He's faithfully following God. So when you see these descendants of Jacob in the story, you're going, well, Joseph's doing fantastic. Even though we might not envy the circumstances he's gone through, we're going, he is still clinging to his God. You have the minor details, as we said. You look at the brothers, and if you get all the details about the brothers, the brothers look like the world. I mean, their families are their family is supposedly followers of God. Uh, their grandfather and great grandfather and their father are individuals who have communicated directly with God have called their family to follow this God, but when you look at these individuals' lives, they really aren't following God. Simeon and Levi are murderers. They murder off a whole town because of something that happened to their sister uh, and the like. Uh, They murder off a a whole town and deceive the whole town in doing it. You got Reuben, who is a fleshly man, the, the one who should be the leader of the family because he's the firstborn. Uh, we find details of him uh, trying to take over the leadership uh, through fleshly means. We have the full story of Judah, a man who is just given to immediate passions. We find a story where eventually, as we said, fathers his own sons through his daughter-in-law, and you're going, these men are lustful, murderers, jealous, and violent. That's what we know about them. And they're supposed to be the followers of God. The rep- I mean, this is the, 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 what God has taken about it, that these are going to be people who are blessings to the world. That they're going to demonstrate the blessings of God to the world, and you're looking at them and going, uh-uh. Wouldn't want them as next-door neighbors. In fact, I wouldn't want them in my own country. Send them far, far away. You go, how does God change these leaders, the founders of the nation of Israel, the sons of Israel? Well, this story gives it to us, and I'm going to give you the synopsis here. You go, what happens? Well, last week we saw that the whole world is going to have a famine. You get to the end of chapter 41 and it's saying the whole of the earth, all of the earth, the whole of the world uh, is suffering a famine. This is a famine that Joseph interpreted the dreams and said is going to happen. And so two years in, the brothers uh, and Jacob are going, we've run out of food. Where are we going to go? And so their father is going, well, why are you standing around here? I mean, you read in the details, if you take the time, you read the details, he's going, why are you standing around looking at each other? Go down to Egypt. Take money with you and go and buy some food. So the brothers show up down in Egypt, uh, 10 of them, not uh, the 11, because uh, Jacob could not depart with his now favorite son that's left him, Benjamin the son of his favorite wife, Rachel. He's not willing to part with him, so he sends the ten sons down to Egypt to buy food and come back. This point is the time where they meet Joseph, and Joseph knows immediately who they are. He speaks to them in a different language and through an interpreter, uh, so they don't know who he is, but he is uh, challenging them uh, that they're spies. Because he wants to find out where they're at, so he's going to test them. I find it ironic that when you read the story, he puts them in jail for three days. I kind of wonder if it's the same place where he got stuck. That would be ironic, but my guess is it's probably the same place. And he lets them sit there for three days. 
And then he brings them out and he leaves Simeon in there. And I don't know why he chose Simeon, but realize Simeon's not a great guy. He's a murderer and a liar and deceitful. Leaves him in there and says, I'm not going to give your brother release uh, and free him until you come back with your youngest brother because you claim you're not spies. You're just merely coming here for food. You made up the story about a younger brother and I don't believe you. You need to bring him back. And until you bring him back, I'm not releasing your brother. And these men uh, are really upset by this because they know how much their dad loves Benjamin and how much he said, no, I'm not sending him down to Egypt. And so what happens is this, is they go on their way. They've paid for their food. And when they get down the road, they open up uh, where the food's at, probably their first meal to cook something or or the like. And they realize that in all of the sacks that they have that they're carrying, their money is there. And now they're going, oh no, we have... We have done something wrong here. This man's already accusing us of being a spy. Now we're thieves in his eyes. We've taken his money. Now what do we do? So they come back to their father at the end of chapter 42 and they tell him the story and he just simply says, I am not going to let you do that. You are not going back with my youngest son. Reuben, of all things that he suggests, look at verse 37, chapter 42. Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. He just simply says, Listen, if, you know, I'm going to go down with Benjamin. If he doesn't come back, he can go ahead and kill your two grandsons. You're like, What in the world? Reuben, what kind of leadership is that? He's the, the firstborn in the family, and you're kind of going, no, and, and dad is obviously going, no, bad idea, but you're not going back with my youngest son. So you get chapter 43, you go, what happens? Well, they run out of food again. So they've got to go back. And they work it out with the father that they're going to go back, and Judah solemnly states, uh, that he is going to be the one who is going to take uh, care of him. Look at verse number 8. Judah said unto Israel, his father said, Send the lad with me. We will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and our little ones. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee, set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. Except we had lingered, surely we had returned this second time. And he just simply says this, I'm offering myself. If I don't come back with Benjamin, I'm your servant. I'm your slave. You can do whatever you want to me but I'm going to make this happen. I was reading this uh, passage uh, for my own Bible reading, and I told my wife about this. Dad goes, okay, I'm going to send you back with Benjamin, but you're going to send back gifts with the money and more money you're going to pay for this, and you're going to send gifts back. You look at verse number 11. Their father Israel said unto them, it must be so, do this, take the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry them down to this man as a present, a little balm, a little honey, spices, myrrh, nuts, and almonds. I said, that is something fit for a king. Nuts, almonds, and honey. You know what? You can go down to a convenience store and get that today if you want to. You don't need to be a king to do that, which indicates the fact of the bounty that we have in comparison to ancient cultures the things that they thought was so fantastic we have 
the nearest place we want to go to. But whatever the case is, back then, this would have been a valuable gift uh, to this king. And so they get sent back. They show up, and the first thing they say is, "Uh, we didn't steal your money. You find that in the middle of uh, chapter 42. They come back, and the man meets them there at the border, and they're saying, we didn't steal the money. We actually, it was in our, and they go into this big explanation. The man goes, well, God's given it to you. You're okay. You paid us. So that confuses the brothers. How did they get money back in their sacks that they had paid? But they go into this man that they don't know as Joseph, and he sets up a feast for them. He knows that this is the youngest son. And in everything that goes on with Benjamin, uh, Joseph sets up a feast. He sets up the brothers in order. You read the story. He's he's got the oldest son in the right spot, and then he goes down by age to the youngest, and he's got it right without ever asking the brothers this. And the brothers are completely confused by that. How could this man know those details? And then, to top it all off, when it comes to the meal, the boys get all of the food that they want, but when it comes to Benjamin's plates, he's got it stacked five times high. Benjamin's given all this food and the like. And so you get to the end of chapter 43 and the the brothers are just amazed that this man has got this knowledge that they aren't even sure how he has it, but he has it. They get ready to go in chapter 44 and they're going to go off. They've paid for their food again. They're going to go home. They've got their brother Simeon back. They've got Benjamin with them. And so they're going to take off. And what Joseph does is he tells the man that's in charge, you go and hide the silver cup that I have, the the cup of the king, and put it in the bag of Benjamin. You do this. And so he does this. The brothers think everything's fine. They check to make sure they've paid their money. There's not, you know, the money that, that, that they uh, have paid back in their bags. And they go off. And all of a sudden, Joseph goes, okay, go after them and find out who stole my cup. And when they show up, it's ironic that they, they show up. The brothers are upset at the fact that they're being accused of stealing. And they say in verse 9 of chapter 44, With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we will become my Lord's slaves, bondmen. And he said, Let also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant, and ye shall be blameless. And they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground, opened every man his sack. They searched, they began at the elders and left at the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. It's kind of ironic. The brothers go, you can kill whoever has it. It's a replay. I mean, I'll throw this in there. It's a replay of a previous story in the, the family line. Remember when Laban uh, was chasing after uh, good old Jacob and his wives and his grandsons? And he comes in and he starts accusing the family, you stole the household gods. And Jacob's like, we didn't steal any gods. You can go and look through all our stuff. And whoever has it, you can kill them. Little does he know that Rachel, his wife, is the one who stole these things. And through her deceit, at least she doesn't die. But the fact is, is she had stolen it. Same kind of statement. The boys make the same kind of statement here. But in this case, the cup is found. 
They come back and these brothers are devastated. Look at verse 13. They rent their clothes. This is the greatest sign in that culture of the fact that they're in distress. Was just to rip the clothes that they had. And they do this. And they show back up in the presence of this man that they're not sure who he is. In verse 14, they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, What deed is this that you've done? Watch ye not that I'm a man who can certainly divine. And Judah, verse 16, said, What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of your servants. And understand this. He, he is sounding like he's talking about the fact, you found us out, we stole your cup. But he's making a statement about their whole life. You found out our iniquity. You've laid it bare. And you find there in verse number 16 or verse number 17, the, the king who was Joseph said, God forbid that I should do so, but the man in whose cup is found, he shall be my slave. As for you, get up and go in peace to your father. And then Judah gets up and gives a very dramatic speech. And we're going to talk about it. It's one of the lengthiest speeches in all the book of Genesis. You go, why is this speech given so much time? We'll find out here in a second. Now, I, I will let you in on the rest of the story. Chapter 45, the brothers find out, okay? You don't know that yet. They find out that this is uh, Joseph that they're talking to. But we're looking at this section where there are these tests that are given where God uses certain things. He's using Joseph mainly, but he's using other things to work on these brothers to change them, to make them different. And you say, well, what does God use uh, in the life of these individuals to change them from violent, worldly, wicked, sensual individuals? And the first thing I would say is this, is that God uses the conscience to bring conviction of sin every person in the world has a conscience you go it doesn't work very well for some that's fine but everybody's got a conscience you know i'm not sure about that well you ought to write down with this note that god uses conscience to bring conviction of sin you ought to write down romans chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 See, in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, God is just simply trying to convict people of their sins. And he's trying to convict, first of all, the worldly, that they're sinners and stand before God. Chapter 2, the Jews, that they are, cannot approach God in their own righteousness. But in the statement uh, of uh, this, he's simply saying to the Jews in the middle of uh, Romans chapter 2, that even the Gentiles have an understanding that they've broken the law of God. Uh, Romans 2 verse 14 says this, for when the Gentiles or people that are outside the Jewish nation, which have not the law, understand, they haven't gotten the law of Moses. They don't have the Ten Commandments in front of them. They don't know about these things. When the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show, these individuals, these people without the law of Moses, show the work of law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. 
Unsaved people have a sense of sin without ever receiving the word of God. They bear guilt. They have a feeling of guilt in their soul and they can't explain how it's there, but we're told that God has right in them the law written in their hearts. What the character of God is like and how we go in the image of God as we heard the song this morning. We're in the image of God and we fail to live up to the image of God. We lie, we steal, we lust, we do all of these things and there's this guilt that's in our soul and you go, why? Because we have a conscience. A conscience that says that's not right and that's not right. That doesn't match up to that law that you have written in your hearts. And along with that, God gives us a mind that also works the process that excuses and accuses us. And so people internally have a conscience that sets them uh, on edge because they know they're guilty. They may not be able to define specifically what it is, but they know they're guilty before God, that God knows and when you read the story about the brothers, the brothers know. They can figure it out. That something's gone on and they, for 20 years, for what they've done to their brother, they're bothered by this. You read in Genesis chapter 42 and verse number 21. I mean, these brothers, after they have been told that they're spies, you need to bring back your brother or else. Verse 21, they make this statement. They said to one another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered and said, uh, spake I not unto you saying, do not sin against the child that you would not hear. Therefore behold also his blood is required. These men are showing, even though they're some of the hardened individuals of life, they're going, I got a guilty conscience. And it goes all the way back 20 years ago for what we did to our brother, and it wasn't right. We heard his cries, and it was something that still rings in our soul that what we did isn't right. I mean, these brothers had been worked over by the conscience that God had given them, the law written in their hearts and their thoughts accusing and excusing them uh, all of this time. That had been working on, you, you might not think that. These men may have gone on in their own way and done their own things and looked like the world during this time frame. We're not told. But for those 20 years, they still have that ringing in their ears. The accusation that they had sinned greatly against God, against their brother, but against God. And so sometimes what God does in order to change an individual is bring them to a understanding that they're a sinner just by what is written in their heart, what God has put into their, we might say, DNA, their character, who they are, their being. And they do this. One has put it this way, we discover that in the 13 intervening years, the guilt and recriminations experienced by Joseph's brother have enslaved and imprisoned them no less than Joseph's chains had done to him. 
Joseph had been in, in bonds as a slave and as a prisoner and the like. They were the same for those years, though theirs were, were not visible, the chains that they were bearing. Ironically, little did they know, but the one that they had treated so badly is pulling the strings and purposely creating the situation that they now bemoan. God uses the very thing that they thought they'd gotten rid of to be the very thing that starts their conscience up again. So God uses conscience to bring conviction of sin. But we might say this also, that God uses difficulties to focus attention on Him. Okay, these men may have throughout these years felt guilt over these things, but they just felt guilt. But what God does in His graciousness is get them to focus on Him. You go down in chapter 42, and they've already said their conscience is bothering them. But then you get down to verse number 28. They go through their bags and they realize the money's there. Verse 28, He said unto his brethren, My money is restored, and lo, it is even in my sack. And their heart failed them, and they were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that what does it say there? That God hath done to us. These men, as far as their lives, probably are ones that you wouldn't know that they had an understanding of who God is, and they lived with no fear of Him. As if He existed, that He had a part of their lives. That's what the fear of the Lord is in the Old Testament, is a person acknowledging that God is a part of my life. He's there every day. He's there and observing. He's the one who gives what I have. He takes away what I don't uh, have. And He is the, the one who is uh, every part of my life. That's the fear of the Lord, an individual who lives like that. These boys haven't lived that way. They lived as He doesn't exist. They lived as if he doesn't have a part. They live as if he doesn't have a say. And all of a sudden, with these circumstances, they suddenly realize God's done this. God has a part in this. God really is a one who is in control of everything. It, we, we thought we could ignore him. We thought we could reject him. We thought we could just go on and he would just go away. No, it's at this point that God has now made Himself known to them and they're acknowledging the fact this is a working of God. No getting around it that they have been brought face to face with the fact that there is a God that rules in the heavens, that rules on the earth, that does as He sees fit. And they realize that they have gotten themselves in trouble with God because God is punishing them. God's judging them for what they've done. So sometimes God just uses difficulties to focus attention on Him. These boys are beginning to think in terms of God. Who He is. What He's capable of. Uh, what power and uh, ability He has. I want to say this thirdly in this whole story that we have is that God uses fear to get us to look to Him for mercy. 
He's the only one that can truly give mercy. He can get us out of the situations we've gotten ourselves in, the guilt and the sin that we've gotten ourselves into. As you read the story, Genesis 43, and you get down to verse number 14, here the boys are heading back to see Pharaoh. There's a statement made by Jacob, and it's this. Well, let's go back to 13. Take also your brother, rise, go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. Jacob says to these, these boys that are there, Jacob who, who is one who's not perfect, but is one who has a relationship with God, just simply says this, maybe you can look to God and find mercy. And you say, what's mercy? Mercy is the idea of receiving something that you don't, well, no, that don't deserve, that you don't get what you do deserve. The grace is getting something that is a favor of God. It's a gift. Mercy is you deserve something, but you don't get it. You say, what do these boys deserve? They deserve all sorts of things for the misery they caused. The sin that they had done. And now they're going before the presence of a man they fear and their, God, their dad says, you need to look to the Almighty God. Maybe He's going to give mercy. Now, dad doesn't know about all the situation. But he at least makes the statement to the brothers, maybe you can find mercy with this God. Maybe He'll be gracious to you. Maybe you won't get what you deserve. And so what you find is this, that God sometimes uses the situations uh, and fear of judgment and punishment for an individual to look to Him for mercy that they don't deserve. But ultimately this, I mean, the, the, the fourth thing we need to see about all of this is that God uses circumstances to make us willing to sacrifice and serve. God can use circumstances to make an individual willing to sacrifice and to serve. And this is what we have with Judah's speech. When you get to the end of this story and these brothers are at the end of everything, they're going to lose now the second brother that they we're trying to protect uh, is not going to happen. And Judah comes before this Pharaoh, well, to him, Pharaoh, and plead for his brother. And it's not really his brother alone. It's actually for his father. If you go through and look at how many times he mentions his dad, father, in his speech, uh, he's really concerned about his father, the hurt that's going to happen to his father, which is ironic because before this, the brothers weren't concerned about hurting their father when they took away Joseph. But in this speech, what you suddenly find is a statement of the change that has gone on where you have Judah, who is not the selfish individual we found back in chapter 38, where he's going out and visiting a temple prostitute because it was known he would do this type of thing. 
No, here's a man who has been broken by God. Uh, as we said in that story with uh, Judah and that situation with Tamar, there does seem to be some breaking for him because he says about Tamar, she's more righteous than I am. It's probably at that point where, where Judah's beginning to recognize he's not what he should be in light of what God's standard is. But because of what's gone on here and the conscience that has bothered them and the knowledge of who God is and a looking for mercy, this has changed Judah. And when Judah comes, he is one who rises to the occasion and he places his life on the line. And he comes and when he uh, presents himself to this brother, he is being an individual who's simply saying, consider my brothers, consider my father, and I am nothing. You can have me. Take me. Judah is here. He's willing to bear slavery rather than blame. He is selflessly willing to accept his own misery rather than put others in misery. This transformation of the brothers represented in Judah is every bit as miraculous as the transformation in the status of Joseph. That Joseph is where he's at is a miracle of the hand of God. But when you see what Judah is like, you're going, that's a miracle of God. A work of God in this man's life. He's transformed. He's changed. I mean, he stands forth and he speaks, and the sheer length of his speech indicates its significance. We are witnessing his transformation from a self seeker to one willing to sacrifice himself for the good of the family. He is one that no longer is just looking out just for himself uh, to the harm of others. Rather, he is uh, here, as one has pointed out, Judah is the first person in Scripture who willingly offers his own life for another. You realize what's going on here? This is the first time someone says, I'm willing to put myself in the place for somebody else. I'm willing to sacrifice in place of them. You don't have this anywhere else in Scripture. This is the first time it happens. Uh, he is uh, his sacrificing love uh, for his brother for the sake of his father is a antitype. It points to something later. It prefigures, as one says, the vicarious atonement of Christ who by his voluntary sufferings heals the breach between God and human beings. Because we forget sometimes who Judah is. Judah becomes the leader of the nation of Israel. This is the point where he becomes the leader. Though he's the fourth brother in line, he becomes the leader of the brothers. The leader of the nation of Israel. And you go, okay, so what does that mean? Well, you go some, well, six, seven hundred years after this event... And there's going to be someone who's born in the family line of Judah that's going to become king of the nation of Israel, one by the name of David, who has a set of kings after him, and they rule and reign after him. But then you follow this out, and you get to the end of this, and you have one that's born into his line who is king of kings and lord of lords, 
But that's not the important thing. He's the one who's ultimately going to sacrifice himself in behalf of everyone else. I mean, the statement of Judah is really, as you read it in the the original language, is the idea that back in Genesis 22, Isaac was supposed to be sacrificed, but they found a lamb, a ram to put in place of him. Same language here. Judah, as you read at the end of the statement there, he is saying in verse 33, Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of, in place of the lad. These are terms used for sacrifice. These are terms used for redemption. He's saying, take me instead of them. I'm willing to sacrifice for the sake of that person over there. In other words, we have a parallel coming out in this. Judah offers himself as a prisoner. His great grandson, Jesus, offers his very life. Judah offers his offer is ultimately not accepted. While Jesus Jesus did die on the cross. Judah offers himself in place of Benjamin, a family member, whereas Jesus offered his life in behalf of the whole world. Jesus died in our place while we were still his enemies. Now we are called to sacrifice ourselves for others in service of Christ. Judah is giving himself as a substitute. And as one said this, Judah's love excels. He's worthy of leadership. He's worthy of kingship. I mean, this is the point where we suddenly said, Genesis, the beginning of everything. You go, how in the world did Judah get to be the line who eventually Jesus comes through? Is because he is the one who takes up the leadership of the family. And just by simple sacrifice here is prefiguring what the greatest in his line would do for the whole world. Now we look at the story and the story and we have to be reminded the stories that we've looked at as we sped through these three chapters and what we've said about the brothers we can say about ourselves. How does God bring us to himself? It's through a conscience that makes us guilty of sin. An awareness that there's an impossibility to be able to pay for what we've done. Our conscience is what uh, brings us, as it states, brings us to Christ. We didn't have uh, our conscience. uh, There would be no hope for us to sense our guilt and thus recognize a need to come to God. And God can bring us to circumstances where we come face to face with Him. You know, people like avoiding bad circumstances. They like avoiding difficult things. But it's in those times where people begin to see God much more clearly than they were if they were successful and doing just fine. And it may have been this way in your life that you were an individual who had a sense of a guilt of sin, but you really were just kind of going through, bearing that guilt, going, there's nothing to do about this. But then you hit some circumstances and you came face to face with God. The reality of who He is, that you were an individual who had sinned against Him and you had no hope for eternity. You were guilty before God. But the fact is, is that there's a God in heaven who wants to give mercy. 
but he realizes that mercy can't happen without payment being made so what he did is sent his son who died to be the substitute for you and when you came to christ when you put your faith and trust in that mercy gift of god of jesus christ's death on the cross do you know what happened to you or should have happened to you that you then reflect what christ is like you're willing to what serve and sacrifice just like judah willing to serve and sacrifice well a person who comes face to face with god through his son will be changed and will be the type of person who will change and will serve and will sacrifice i mean that's what philippians chapter 2 reminds us of let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus and you go through that whole thing and you go what was he willing to do he was willing to become a servant and he was willing to die it says the death of the cross a cross kind of death which you go what's that the worst kind of death you could think of you go why it wasn't for himself it was for other individuals and so what we see here is a complete change in these brothers wrought by god worked on by god but finally an individual who's reflecting what god's like to those around him judah in this speech is reflecting that so it is for you god may have changed you through circumstances through conscience and whatever it may have been but brought you to himself and now you go well what's my life like it's not about me it's about others and you go why because you've come face to face with your god and now you're reflecting what he's like and so for the story of us it just carries this the story along we now know judah is going to be the one through the messiah comes and we'll get that right at the end of the book of genesis uh that will be prophesied to the fact but god changed these men and you may be in here going, uh, I, you know, he's talking about change and that there's a possibility of forgiveness of sins and the like. I don't believe it. Well, you've got people who can bear testimony to what happened here in this story, happened in their life, and God brought them to his son, and they found mercy and grace in Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And that they've changed from that point. And it's not because they worked at change and are better people now and whatever. No, it's because God through His Son has wrought a change in their life. He's transformed them, or as the Bible term is, He regenerated them. Gave them new life. Made them a new creature. And so for you, you can have testimony both in Scripture and in real life of individuals who were changed by God forever and were different. And we're about to publicly, <laughs> publicly uh, through the Lord's Supper, just simply say, here's what God did for us. He offered us His Son, the blood sacrifice, and we're just simply acknowledging the fact He changed us, and we look forward to the day that we're finally what? In His presence. We do this till He comes. And so we look forward uh, to just being able to proclaim that testimony of what Jesus did. We are now changed we're different lord we thank you these brothers worst in society should have been followers of god weren't but what you did in working them over all of those years 
through your conscience, through the circumstances they went through, bringing to the, well, the point where they have no hope in and of themselves. They need mercy. They need grace. You brought these boys to that point. You've done that in people's lives here. People who sinned against you, had no hope, uh, but you eventually brought them face to face through your word and through the teaching of your word that they needed a Savior by the name of Jesus. And they accepted that. They've been changed. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for that. The transformation doesn't happen by accident. It's by your working that you change people. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you're willing to rescue sinners. You could have left these boys to their devices, their own destruction, but you didn't. And there may be one in this uh, audience that doesn't know you as Savior. They've got a guilt of sin. They know they have no hope. There are circumstances that are crushing them, and they are looking with no hope to the future. They need mercy. They need grace. May they find it in Jesus, your Son. They'll be amazed at the transformation, just as you're amazed in this story of the transformation of these brothers. There'll be a change that takes place in them, and it will be a work of God that they will be able to see. So Lord, we thank you for saving our soul. And we praise you in his name. Amen.